We will begin working on an impenetrable, physical, tall, powerful, beautiful southern border wall. As long as I've been politically conscious, I've been hearing Republican politicians make promises like this to stop illegal immigration from Mexico by building a border wall. Of course, no previous politician made their promises using the kind of absurd rhetoric Donald Trump preferred. But it was in part Trump's willingness to be so openly opposed to illegal immigration that won him the Republican Party nomination against his more circumspect opponents. Issues of borders and immigration aren't just charged in America. European politics have been transformed over the issue in recent years, and it has led to unusual new policies related to border control. For example, the small port of Calais in northern France is 21 miles across the sea from England. But British border controls sit on French land, where the UK government has contributed hundreds of millions of pounds towards border security. The Calais area has seen decades of makeshift refugee camps full of people trying to reach the UK. In 2015, a camp known as The Jungle became a focus of mainstream media when it grew into a shantytown of around 9,000 people. My name is Shakir Jared and I was born in Pakistan. Shakir is one of the thousands who spent time in the camp. While working as a nurse in Pakistan, he became targeted by militants, putting his life and those of his family in serious danger. I was so scared what to do. And at that time, I think what? is the best way to left the country for a while. Shakir sold everything he owned and paid a smuggler to take him, his wife, and two small children out of his country. They traveled for months, crossing numerous borders, until in Bulgaria they became separated. Searching for his family along the migration route, Shakir eventually ended up alone in Calais. Separated from the town by factories and a highway, the jungle camp was squalid, dangerous, and lacked basic resources. Explosions and fires were common. Police often used tear gas for crowd control, and injuries were frequent. With experience in nursing, Shakir often ended up providing emergency support. I have treated many people who have been beaten with sticks by the police, who have been pepper sprayed, who have been beaten by police dog. So one day when I, uh, some boys got injured from the police, and they come to my caravan, so I made it stitches. So when I made it stitches, I put Facebook post. So when that doctor saw that post and they said, why you made this? It's not legal and blah, blah, blah. I said, man, this is jungle. In a jungle, is nothing is legal. Everything is illegal in jungle. The camp was demolished in 2016, but Calais remains a destination for many hopeful migrants. And the question of how to receive the people who arrive at the country's borders remains one of the most contentious political issues of our time. This is Ministry of Ideas. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we look at human displacement and international borders. We consider the form, function, and implication of borders and ask what it means if they're not really the fixed lines on a map we imagine them to be. In 1808, the German philosopher Johann Gottlieb Fichte argued that the truly natural borders of states are internal borders, based upon invisible bonds and human characteristics, on descent, shared history, and language. 
For Fichte, people from outside these borders were a threat, bringing disturbance and confusion. In contrast, the French philosopher Étienne Balabar argued that natural borders are a political myth. Balabar argued borders are constructions of the state, non-democratic spaces, where, quote, political participation gives way to the rule of police. As a result of armed force, borders become accepted, sanctified, and interiorized. With the decline of empires and the rise of nationalism in the 19th century, national borders have tended to track shared ethnic, linguistic, and historical bonds. However, as a result of invasions and colonialism, many borders are entirely political, geographically arbitrary creations. Just consider the perfectly straight lines that form the borders of many formerly colonized African countries. And Balabar's notion that borders are politically malleable can still be seen in action today. And we've never had a wall here. This chapel's been here 160, 150 years. We've never been, a, never been through hell and high water, never had a wall. This is Roy Snipes, a priest interviewed by Mission Presbytery. If Trump's border wall had been constructed as planned, the La Lomitsa Chapel, located in Mission, Texas, would have ended up on the south side of the wall, finding itself suddenly in Mexican territory. This is Chowra Makarami, an anthropologist and researcher at the National Center for Scientific Research in Paris. I think that we first have to be very well aware of the political game that is behind these border control policies. And I mean, it's very obvious in the US. It's less obvious in the EU where like for decades, these border control policies have been presented as a very technical, you know, technocratic uh, expertise that was, you know, the, the, the job of security uh, uh, experts. But actually it was very political and you can see it where each new government, uh, be them from, from the left or the right, you know, wing, um, the first thing they do when they come into power that they pass an immigration law. Indeed, in January 2021, on his first day as U.S. president, Joe Biden signed multiple executive orders on immigration law, including pausing the construction of the U.S.-Mexico wall. The wall was an attempt to mark the border as we generally imagine it, a line that clearly draws a boundary between two territories. But in fact, Border events actually occur over large expanses of space, not just at the border. Chora Makrami has worked extensively on French zone d'attente, the so-called waiting zones used to hold foreigners who have arrived at international ports but have not been granted entry into France. Waiting zones sit on French territory, but those held within them are not afforded the rights and protections that the law grants to French citizens. Here, Makarami describes the creation of an impromptu waiting zone. It can be um, like, for instance, at one point there was a boat with uh, Kurdish refugees who came uh, in the south of France. It was a, quite a big boat. And then the, the sand, the, the beach was declared waiting zone. So they, they just put some, uh, some signs and they declare like a 300 meters, you know, a, a buffer zone, the waiting zone. Another striking example of an impromptu waiting zone occurred at the Roissy Airport in Paris. First, it was the first floor of the hotel. So people who were on the, on the first floor of the Hotel Ibis at Roissy were in France, but, but the detainees on the second floor of the Hotel Ibis, which was rented by the Interior Ministry, were, were supposed to be in international zone. And then 
the border detention center has been built in 2004, and this was supposed to be an international zone, although it was like clearly in France. So, so this this back and forth between between law and geography in order to create, you know, this specific situation, which is like like total abstraction, total fiction, that enables exceptional treatment, exceptional law. Rather than being simply a line to cross, the border can encompass whole areas and populations. It refers not only to checkpoints, barbed wire fences and walls, but also to stretches of land, to camps and shelters, and to human beings themselves. And this broader form of border can be erected immediately at government discretion and enforced without larger political deliberation. A small group of East African teenagers um, lone, unaccompanied minors were playing football on an area of grass surrounded by other children playing, cycling, families picnicking, teenagers listening to music. This is Celeste Cantor Stevens, an activist, writer, and producer of this episode, describing a scene in a public park in Calais. And then about six armored CRS police officers arrived, circled that particular group of boys, and marched them out of the park and into police vans. I don't know what happened to the group. I didn't see them after. Um, But we can make very good assumptions based on the experiences of other people in Calais and what they have told me happened to them. It's likely that the boys were taken briefly to a detention centre and then let out. People told me stories of this happening in the middle of the night, so maybe at 3, 4am when it's dark and cold and less safe outside. Alternatively, and also very commonly, the boys might have been driven out of the town to a remote area and just left from where they would inevitably begin a very long walk back without resources, water, shops, towards the camp on the outskirts of Calais. So it's not that these children were being arrested for for any crime, they weren't being accused of theft or of violence towards other people, but they were being identified visually as displaced people and treated in an exceptional way compared to the, the French people and the tourists around them essentially being segregated from this world and and warned, threatened psychologically and physically and and very aggressively shown that they didn't belong to the same space as the other people around them. In a busy public space, this is a really clear example of the profiling on racial and, and other bases that takes place to identify who is just a person on French land and who is conversely to be treated as if at the border. No matter where they are in geographical space, Displaced people can seem to exist permanently in a border space. Deportation procedures, for example, can lead to seemingly endless cyclical journeys. The European Dublin Regulation allows states to return asylum seekers to a country they have already passed through. This happened to Shakir before arriving in Calais. They didn't arrest us. They didn't. They just sending back us from the train, which I made a ticket from the Italy to coming to France in the border. They will took us from one train to given another train, which train going back to Italy. So we again in Italy again. Displaced persons may be allowed to travel to a new country, but they are often not allowed to settle there and are thrust into a state of perpetual movement. No matter how far from the border they go, these people seem to inhabit a border space, as if living on the border, even being the border. In June 2016, British citizens voted to leave the European Union, a decision that, among other things, would make border crossings more difficult between Britain and the EU. 
Four months later, Prime Minister Theresa May made these remarks at a Conservative Party conference in Birmingham. But today, too many people in positions of power behave as though they have more in common with international elites than with the people down the road, the people they employ, the people they pass on the street. But if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. You don't understand what the very word citizenship means. This statement is directed towards a cosmopolitan elite who, May implies, prioritize mobility and autonomy over national loyalty and community. May suggests that without national borders, there could be no citizens of the space within them. Seen from this perspective, maybe borders don't simply create a country's margins. Maybe they also help create its center, its unifying sense of solidarity and community. A desire for cohesion and community can attract people to a pro-border stance. Conservatives in particular tend to identify more strongly with members of their local community. If they believe that stronger border controls will promote the well-being of that community, they will favor them. Conversely, left-leaning people are more likely to favor global unity and international collaboration. Compare May's criticism of the global citizen with the attitude of the politically left politician Jeremy Corbyn at London's 2019 climate strike action, appealing for international collaboration in tackling climate change. Environmental damage and destruction, river pollution, sea pollution, air pollution, knows no national boundaries. We live in an age of movement and international connection, where viruses spread rapidly across the world and can only be truly defeated through global collaboration, where military attacks in distant lands create refugees who seek safety in the country that supplied the weapons. Borders can be understood as promoting liberties and human rights, as outlining a space of distributive justice and self-determination, a space in which citizens might share burdens and benefits of law, have a collective say in values and organization, and agree to prioritize people within that space. But borderlines also define the boundaries of these values. They can prevent cultural progression, closing doors to what is different or new. They signal that those who come from outside are less worthy, less deserving of the rights given to those within the space in question. This abuse becomes all the more disturbing when directed at a group of people who should have stronger legal protections under international laws and treaties, refugees and asylum seekers. So we have two programs for refugees. One relates to refugees who arrive at our border, right, or are present within our country. And one relates to refugees who are abroad. This is Deborah Anker, a professor at Harvard Law School and a leading authority on asylum law. The biggest difference with the asylum process is there is this obligation of non-refoulement. There is this obligation of non-return when somebody is at your border or inside your country. And that's probably the most fundamental norm of international refugee law. However, the legal procedures that refugees have to go through can still be quite difficult, as Adrian Renix, a writer and immigration lawyer, explains. When you look at the Refugee Convention, like it sounds very simple in a way, like in a way that like sometimes like the law does not seem simple. You're like, oh, OK, so we just have agreed that will that when people are fleeing countries for X, Y, Z reason that we will give them asylum. OK, that's great. But then in practice, it's incredibly complicated. And the things that cases turn on have like nothing to do with the situation that they're really in. And like one of the hardest things about asylum law, too, is that you have to prove why someone is being targeted. 
So the five protected grounds are race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or particular social group. So the idea is that if you have an immutable characteristic, something about yourself that you can't change or shouldn't have to change, and someone's targeting you for that reason, you should be able to get asylum. Um, But there's like incredible argument about what a particular social group should be. It's very, very subjective. That's not the only problem. Well, it's very challenging for refugees because they flee under circumstances where they don't collect documentation and they don't get affidavits from people about what happened to them or families or people similar to them. And, you know, you look at materials from the United Nations High Commission for Refugees and and just any commentary on refugee law, there's an there's an inherent acknowledgement that um, refugees should be given the benefit of the doubt and that they flee without proof. So in principle, people should be evaluated with an understanding of the trauma and the lack of evidence. In reality, they have to present a lot of evidence. And there's a lot of problems in that. And even if they have documentation, the interview itself can be difficult and intimidating. And it's very upsetting to see sometimes if you see an interview is kind of going off the rails or you feel like they're not asking the right questions or you feel like they're not giving them enough time to answer. And these people are completely vulnerable um, and completely dependent on the sort of goodwill of this person who's talking to them. And unfortunately, few asylum seekers have access to good legal aid. The biggest problem is that there's no right to legal representation. And if you combine lack of representation and um, detention, present some real obstacles to people successfully making their claims. Sadly, the lack of legal aid is partly by design. During the Reagan years, um, there were restrictions put on legal services so that legal services wasn't allowed to provide representation if if they wanted to get their legal services funds. Um, And that was a period when a lot of legal services organizations just were forced to stop doing asylum representation and other immigration representation in order to get their funding. The main problem with detention centers, just apart from the sort of psychological and material uh, difficulties of confinement, is that it really restricts people's access to legal resources at a time when it's like completely crucial for their ability to stay in the country. The courts across the country grant asylum at wildly different rates. You go to New York, for example, your chance of success, just as a very broad average, they grant like 88% of the cases that they see. Now, if you are in Atlanta, they grant 2% of the cases that they see. So that's a huge difference. And these courts are purportedly applying the same law. Um, It's hard to not think that personal animus on the parts of judges, that's sort of a a culture within certain courts of not believing people and of not wanting to grant cases is really determining why these grant rates are so low. Many people would say that, okay, maybe we don't agree that we owe obligations to everyone, but maybe we owe some obligations specifically to people that we've harmed in the past. And there, I think what comes into play is that we have a real ignorance in the U.S. about the level of our entanglement with a lot of these countries um, that are now sending um, asylum seekers, refugees, or just migrants in general. Um, You know, our past military and foreign policy entanglements, our our trade and economic policies, um, you know, our sort of often botched, um, you know, drug and security policies where we we pour a lot of money, we pour a lot of arms into regions that are supposed where with the idea of 
controlling the drug trade that then it just ends up completely destabilizing the situation for ordinary people. Um, I think most people in the U.S. don't know about those things and don't want to know about those things. For me, the only ethical reason to restrict refugee admissions would be if you actually did not have the resources to support more population or were in kind of such a state of political upheaval that you thought that the situation was going to deteriorate very rapidly. Um, we're not near that point. I think the country takes the most refugees right now is Lebanon, which is not a country that you typically think of as like a, like, you know, a like stalwart defender of human rights with like, you know, vast resources to take care of people. That to me makes it even more unconscionable that wealthy countries um, who have the resources and the infrastructure to absorb more population without a lot of trauma are refusing to do so. Um, I think it's egregious moral wrong. The Western world is stingy towards the South. I mean, stingy is kind of a nice way of putting it, right? We've been we've been keeping all the goods for our, you know, we get most of the goods, right? Um, for ourselves, and we don't want to share them. Um, we don't want to think about, you know, there's a principle of equity in the in the moral universe. I mean, the world's refugee population is now about, I think, about 26 million displaced persons, which includes people displaced within their country, uh, goes up to about 65 million now, more than any time. You know, 1% of those people get resettled in the West. Um, it's the countries in the South that are you know, have open borders, and um, and we dole out small amounts of resources through the UNHCR. For Adrian, direct experience working with refugees changed the issue from an abstract political question to one of human compassion. I really sometimes feel like if everybody had to go see this, um, our immigration conversation would be very different in this country because I feel like having someone in front of you in that kind of pain and distress is something that I would hope most human beings would respond to. For me, it boils down to the idea that, you know, all human beings are equal um, and we sort of live in this world where, you know, there are historical and geographical accidents that mean that more, more wealth, more resources... Um, are concentrated in particular places relative to where the population is concentrated. And so you need to be willing to kind of do the work to, you know, even the even that balance out. This episode was produced by Celeste Cantor-Stevens, Maria Devlin-McNair, and Shannon Boley. Ministry of Ideas is produced at Harvard Divinity School by Nick Anderson, me, Zachary Davis, and Maria Devlin-McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today, I want to encourage you to listen to the Hub & Spoke podcast, Open Source. In each episode, host Christopher Leiden illuminates our time through conversations about arts, ideas, and politics. A great recent episode was about the legacy of Lauren Berlant, 
the groundbreaking scholar who studied the mood of American culture. Learn more and listen at radioopensource.org. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.